There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Kilda, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 127, Q&A 2023, part tahi. This podcast is recorded in Te Whanganui Atara on the rohe of Muiupoko, Taranaki Whanui, Te Atiawa and Ngāti Toa Rangatira. We are generously supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash historyaltheodore. Last time, we finished up our discussion on Māori warfare, talking about how they resolved those conflicts. That was the final episode that I had scripted for the pre-European era, and I thought now would be a good time to pause a little and see what questions you, the audience, had for me before we finally close this chapter. I like to think I covered most topics pretty well and in detail, but maybe there was something I missed, or an idea I hadn't fully clarified. So I asked for you to send in your queries, and you delivered. I've split the questions into two sections. The first is the historical questions, ones about the content we have covered over the last five years that required me to do a bit of research. The second section is questions more related to my opinion around various historical topics, or the behind the scenes of how I make the podcast. This episode ended up being a lot longer than I initially anticipated, so I have split the episode into five separate parts that will be coming out on our regular release cycle, which actually ends up being quite nice, because I'm going to take a bit of time off next year, and these episodes will bridge the gap, so you'll still be getting a bit of content from me, even when I'm actually on holiday. Although I have scripted this episode somewhat, just so that I know what I'm talking about and don't forget anything, 
this is going to be a bit more you know rambly and off the cuff it's going to be a lot of me just kind of just talking and lots of ums and ahs and all that sort of stuff so it's not going to be quite as um, polished necessarily as some of the others when it comes to the the tightness of the script so yeah so just to let you know that if that's going to bother you then well you shit out of luck my friend <laughs> Anyway, let's uh, crack into it. Um, So the first question we have comes from Jonathan. Could you provide a brief history of the creation of the All Blacks haka, kapa or pango? I absolutely can. So for those of you that don't know, kapa or pango is the other haka that the All Blacks perform at some rugby games. Kamate, which we discussed previously, uh, is the one that they're most well known for, but kapa or pango they do perform on occasion. And I guess I should probably address uh, very briefly uh, as to why I didn't mention Kapa or Pango in uh, the original Haka episodes, which are episodes 82, 83, and 84, uh, titled Taringa Fakarongo, Karete, and Kia Mau. Uh, it's because uh, Kapa or Pango is not within the uh, kind of realm of, or it's not within the, the scope of the podcast, basically. I really wanted to focus on Kamate. Uh, made by Taroparaha because that's for one because that's really famous um Kapa Opango is slightly less famous and it doesn't really have the same sort of history as uh the as Kamate because you know that was made couple nearly a couple hundred years ago now and all that sort of stuff Kapa Opango is a much more recent invention um or composition I should say um and in fact it was actually made in 2005 uh, so if we're taking this podcast to be, you know, the cutoff is the year 2000, the turn of the millennium, that's obviously five years over the deadline. So that's basically why I didn't include it, is because uh, it was slightly outside the scope of what I generally consider to be the rather hard kind of, de- you know, the hard sort of line of what's in and what's out. And also just because um, I wanted to focus on Kamate, which is the one that everyone, or basically everyone knows when they think of the Haka. Um, but I'm more than happy to uh, talk about it here and what some of the history is uh, around it. So, as I just mentioned, Kapa Opango was first performed in 2005 in Dunedin during a test match between the All Blacks and the Springboks. The All Blacks being the New Zealand National Men's Rugby Union team and the Springboks being the equivalent for South Africa. So this match took place during the Tri-Nations series, a rugby union tournament that was at the time contested between New Zealand, South Africa and Australia, since they were consistently the most highly ranked teams in the Southern Hemisphere. The Tri-Nations would later include Argentina in 2012, being renamed the Rugby Championship the year before. Kapa Opango was specifically written for the All Blacks as a haka for them, reflecting their history and mana. As such, the name, Kapa Opango, roughly translates to, quote, team in black, end quote. It was written by an expert in tikanga from Ngāti Parau, David Ladelli, with a bit of collaboration from the team, particularly player Aaron Major and the captain at the time, Tana Umanga. Speaking about composing Kapa Opango, Ladelli said, quote, Kapa Opango is about a group of young men that wanted to express themselves during haka, and my job was to compose actions to that particular expression. 
it's about them. It talks about, this is my time in the black jersey. This is my time to express myself as a player on behalf of my country, end quote. At the time the new haka was shown to the wider world, there was a couple of controversies. The first was that there was an action during the haka that is a kind of throat-slitting gesture done with the thumb. You know, you stick your thumb out, you point it at your neck, and you kind of run it across it as if you're slitting someone's throat. It's a pretty universally understood gesture. According to the All Blacks, this was not meant to indicate any sort of harm to the opposing team, but all the same, it was later removed from the choreography. The other issue was that some fans thought this would spell the end of the All Blacks tradition of performing kamate, and that kapa o pango was there to replace it. Which, as we now know many years later, that this wasn't the case, as they have performed both many times since then. Umanga said at the time, quote, We are not taking away the old haka kamate. We are adding to it. We are giving it a mate, someone to sit alongside, end quote. According to the All Blacks website, there isn't any formal process as to which haka they use on any given day, and is just down to their discretion. However, I will add that there has been some, I guess, colloquial discussion among the fans at least, as to when maybe kamate should be used versus kapa or pango, and in general when they should perform a haka at all. Uh, some ideas that have kind of been discussed is that maybe the All Blacks should only perform one when they're in a home game, when they're playing in New Zealand, or maybe they should only do it when they're playing an away game, when they're playing somewhere else internationally, and maybe they should only use uh, kamate on certain places in New Zealand or in certain places in New Zealand or during certain circumstances, like if it's, you know, a Rugby World Cup final, they should definitely do it then, but maybe if it's something slightly less important, then maybe they don't need to do it. As far as I'm aware, there's been no real uh, word from, you know, official sources as to whether they're going to change this just kind of just discretion that the team have as to when and where they're going to do which haka. Um... So it's just, at the moment, it's just things that people are saying. You know, some are former All Blacks, like Colin Meads has been quite a vocal person uh, for using the haka less, and he's a former All Black. But, you know, it's, um, unless the New Zealand Rugby Union come out and say anything or discuss it, it's just people saying shit, right? So there's nothing really to behind that just at the moment. Anyway, let's get back to the origins of Kapa o Pango. So, the All Blacks could have performed Kapa o Pango in basically any sort of circumstance. They could have performed it in front of any team they wanted. And they specifically chose the South African team. This was apparently a very deliberate choice. When they revealed Kapa o Pango, they wanted it to be in front of the South African team. Now, part of why that's significant is because just before the Tri-Nations tournament, the All Blacks had just finished a series of matches against the British and Irish Lions, who are another rugby union team made up of players from, you know, Brit British Isles and Ireland. It's pretty common for them to do tours around the world of various Commonwealth countries and play matches against uh, the national teams of those countries. So this time they'd come to New Zealand to play the All Blacks. And this was 
reasonably important because this was the first time the lions had come here for over a decade. So it was a pretty big deal with lots of media coverage. But they didn't feel like that would be the right time to bring out a new haka. Sure, the media would have made a huge song and dance about it, and it would have made headlines the world over, but that isn't what kapa or pango, or really haka in general, is about. The team also didn't want to, quote, pander to the economically rich home nations. This was about personal meaning and creating a legacy, end quote. To that end, South Africa and the Springboks were seen as our biggest and greatest rugby rival. So they were chosen to be the first to face Kapa Opango. And so that's how Kapa Opango came about. It's not quite as storied as Kamate. Uh, it was, you know, if you want to boil it down into a nutshell, the All Blacks had it written for them, which is obviously not remotely as interesting uh, as, you know, Musket Wars war leader makes it while he's hiding in a pit in the ground trying to hide from his enemies. Um, but, you know, th- it is a bit of an interesting story about why the All Blacks felt that they needed to, uh, or why they wanted to have their own haka that wasn't necessarily kind of co-opted from something else or somewhere else. They wanted something that meant, you know, that meant something to them, which, you know, I think is that's that's important anyway moving on to the next question uh this one comes from davy i was just wondering if you could do a bit of a yarn about pre-european hunting and fishing i know you sort of covered it just wondering if you could go into a little more detail about how maori hunted and gathered kai how did they catch more pigs etc and did they dive as an avid hunter-fisherman myself, it would be awesome to know a bit more information on that topic. Thank you for the question. I will start by saying that I'm going to narrow down uh, my answer a little bit because I think in terms of fishing, uh, I did nearly 10 episodes on that. So I'm not going to cover any more of that here um, just because I think I, I really covered that really well back in episodes uh, 59 to 70 are the ones all about um, hunting and fishing, um, mostly fishing, um, and yeah, a little bit of hunting and a little bit of cooking uh, as well. So if you have any uh, if you want to know anything about the fishing, uh, those are the episodes to look at. And you mentioned pigs. I don't have, I could not find any information about pigs. I, As far as I'm aware, Māori didn't bring them to Aotearoa. I had heard that somewhere, like a long time ago, and I have just not found any information to corroborate that. So maybe I'm just looking in the wrong places, not sure. Um, and the same thing with um, them diving. I could not find anything about them uh, diving uh, I suspect that they probably did we know that they did get shellfish and I think I might have talked about a little bit of diving stuff uh, back in the fishing episodes but if I'm being 100% honest I don't quite remember so so there's that but I looked again and couldn't really find anything uh, so that yeah just to put that as that sort of caveat I'm not going to cover those things because uh, I think they've either been well covered or I couldn't find any extra information on them I do agree though that I did not cover hunting in a huge amount of detail and that's partially because uh, at the time I didn't find a huge amount about it 
uh, back when I did 59 to 70. But at the prompting of your question, I have gone back and looked at some other stuff and found a bunch of other interesting things uh, that you might might like to know. So that's what we're going to talk about here is um, a bit of stuff, uh, a bit more stuff around hunting specifically like in the bush and stuff um so this directly relates to the information from episode 69 nice that's not me just saying nice that is actually the name of the episode (laughs) it was always going to be that regardless of what the topic was so we're going to talk about yeah some hunting and stuff in the bush for your enjoyment particularly of course they maori were um hunting birds Um, They weren't really hunting mammals, um, although we are going to talk about some rat trapping a little bit at the end, but primarily they were hunting birds. And so the other thing I guess I'll say is that I'm not going to cover any of the stuff that is about like um, the tikanga and what they would do around tapu and um, all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to cover the spiritual kind of elements of it here. Um, That would just it really makes it twice as long. Um, I'm only going to talk about like the practicalities. How were they hunting um, these animals? What kind of things were they doing? Um, how did they go about it? Rather than just, yeah, rather than also looking at the spiritual kind of elements as well. Obviously those are important, but in terms of time, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to talk about the practicalities. So, Fowlers would usually start searching through the forest after the harvest, which could be as early as March in some cases. Initially, they would be looking to see what birds were around, how many there were, whether they looked in good enough condition to eat, and presumably other signs in the environment that would indicate it was the right time of year for fowling, such as certain plants fruiting or flowering. Not all manu would be caught during this period, though. Kiriru would be caught when the tawa fruited later in the summer, or tui would be caught when the rata flowered at roughly the same time. For some iwi, the farimata is where snares, traps, nets, perches, and other items used for catching birds would be constructed and stored. When they were out in the bush, a quick and dirty mata would be erected to serve as a temporary shelter while the fowlers prepared their gear. So that's some broad information about hunting, and fowling specifically, but I thought we could dive a little bit sort of more specific, dive a little bit deeper uh, than that, and talk about some specific Uh, birds and how they were caught because not every bird was caught in the same way you don't catch a flying bird in the same way that you catch a ground dwelling bird so i thought we might you know look at that a little bit closer so we're going to start with the kiwi which hopefully everyone should know what that is it's the round brown fluffy thing uh, that is you know our national symbol basically um so hopefully i don't have to explain what a kiwi is but it is a flightless bird um which is kind of the key part to how it was caught kiwi were sometimes referred to as tamanu huna atane the hidden bird of tane possibly since they are nocturnal Humans could be referred as that as well if they were sneaking around for some reason. To hunt kiwi, they would search around for some tracks, which was obviously a good indication that a kiwi was probably nearby. So you'd follow those and then you'd make some calls, like make kiwi calls to try and attract them. 
And while you were doing that, you would also have some dogs with you. And those dogs would probably have harakeke collars around them, which were attached to fiber leads, which were also in turn attached to a wooden rod. And they were taken through the bush. The call would be made by putting the little finger in the mouth and kind of whistling. If you know what a kiwi sounds like, um, or at least a um, male kiwi, they they make this sort of whistling call. If you're listening to this at roughly the time of uh, release, you've probably seen that viral video of the one that's making that weird sort of kind of noise. Um, it's horrid. But that's what the females sound like. Only the males get that nice whistling sort of noise that everyone's very familiar with. The collar of the dogs would often have wood or bone attached so that it would rattle as it ran, allowing the fowler to locate the dog if it ever got lost or came off the leash. Elston Best also says that they would take a piece of wood that wasn't on fire, but it was smouldering, so that the ember looked like a glowworm to entice the kiwi closer. Once the bird got close enough, the fowler would increase the slack on the lead and allow the dog to run forth, though they always kept a hold of the wooden rod. This method was apparently very effective, and it wasn't uncommon for fowlers to catch more birds than they could carry. The first kiwi that was caught would sometimes have their heart taken out, cooked, and then offered to the atua or tipuna before being given to the dogs to eat, with the rest of the bird being eaten by the hunters. In some cases, the dogs may have also been muzzled. Kiwi could sometimes be taken in snares that were similar to ones used for other ground-dwelling birds and even some rats, mainly being used if the fowler didn't have access to a dog for some reason. The thing about the calls that were made, though, was that they didn't have an effect on two birds already together, which makes sense, since calling is mostly used by Kiwi to communicate between mated peers. So if the two individuals were already together, they would know that whoever was calling was probably someone else that they weren't interested in. On the other hand, the huia can fly, or rather could fly, because it's now extinct. And so the way that you caught it was very different. So Huia had a very limited range, as in where they were found, mostly around the Ruahines, Tararuas, Rimatakas, Rongorongos, and maybe the Hutt Valley. So the kind of area that we're talking about is Greater Wellington and Wairarapa, so basically the lower North Island. They were possibly found further north, but definitely not found in the South Island. Huia had a trusting nature, much like many other birds in Aotearoa, and as such, they were relatively easy to catch. Like the Kiwi, making calls would bring them close, and their call was apparently, quote, a guttural croak, end quote. Which, I don't really know what that would actually sound like. Anyway... They were apparently very hard to see though, so sometimes you could walk past them without even noticing. They could get close enough to catch by hand. The huia could also be caught with a noose attached to a stick that was slipped over the bird's head, called a tari. And I think I actually mentioned this in episode 69 as well in relation to kereru and kaka. Alston Best himself apparently caught one with his hands without making any calls or the use of any lures, 
So again, that seems to indicate that they were relatively straightforward to catch, because... I don't know, call it a hunch, but I don't think Elston Best was that much of a bushman who was familiar with catching animals and that sort of stuff. Maybe he was, I don't know. But he was he was he strikes me as much more of a of a book nerd like I am. <laughs> the other way that they could be caught was just by hitting them to knock them out or kill them when they got close. They wouldn't always be killed though, sometimes they would be kept in cages to wait for the tail feathers to mature if they were a bit young. Because although they could be eaten for their meat, the reason that they were hunted primarily was for their feathers. The tail feathers of the huia um, were quite a prestigious item for Māori. It was a, and I guess still is, although much rarer now obviously because they're extinct, um, but it was a symbol of chieftainship. It was a symbol of power um, and all that kind of stuff. You've probably seen pictures of people with huia feathers. Um, they're the black ones that have got that sort of V point in them uh, near the end of the tail where the end of the tail is white um, so they're quite distinctive something that was hunted for its meat though was the moor and in fact we don't know much about how maori hunted moor since that information was mostly lost over time likely because it was no longer needed to survive in aotearoa once the bird went extinct and that kind of makes sense, right? The stories that Māori have, the myths, the legends, all that sort of stuff, a lot of them relate to very practical things on how to survive in the Aotearoa landscape. You know, where do you find certain rocks? How do you catch certain things? Some of those stories were related to morals and that sort of thing, but a lot of them were related to how you survive, basically. How you find these things or do these things or why things are the way they are. And so if that information, this information being how do you catch a moor, if that information is no longer relevant, it makes sense to set it aside, especially when you're method of conveyance over the generations is orally somebody has to remember this stuff you know and there's only so much capacity in someone's brain so if you've only got a limited capacity with which to store information in this case someone's brain then you want to make the best use of that uh you know of the memory of that limited space that you have and so there doesn't seem like a huge amount of point in keeping most of the information about how more were caught if that just doesn't matter anymore because there's none around. So to me, the fact that we don't know a huge amount about how more were caught, at least from, you know, Māori stories and that sort of stuff, that to me makes sense. But we do know a little bit, or at least we know some stuff and then we can infer some other stuff from that. So, for example, we do know that Māori burned forest to flush the moa out. And Best mentions the moa would run into the swamps or over cliffs where they would die. So it's possible that humans themselves didn't make the final blow. They basically forced the moa into unfavourable situations and the environment did the rest of the job for them. 
Otherwise, the idea could have also been to put them into these situations that where they were cornered, basically, and then they could be more easily finished off. Such as if, you know, again, they were fell off a cliff, you know, and broke their legs or whatever, you could just run up and finish it off. Or if it got stuck in the swamp, again, you could run up and finish it off. Best also mentions hunting them with a spear of some kind, setting up ambushes on the paths they would often take through the bush. Snares and pits were also apparently utilised, but again, we don't know a huge amount about them. Another account says they made like a pen with fences around it, and lured the moor in by having a woman stand in the middle with a crying baby, which apparently attracted the moor. When the birds got into the pen, the woman would pick up some rocks that had been heated in a fire and throw them at the birds, who would proceed to swallow them, since the way that moa digest stuff is by having rocks in their gizzards, rather than stomachs. They don't have stomach acid, they just swallow rocks, and then the rocks, you know, jumble around in their stomachs and crush up any you know, fibrous material that they eat. So when they saw rocks, they went, hey man, that looks delicious, I'm going to swallow that. So they'd eat the rocks, which were superheated from being boiled or put in a fire or whatever, and of course naturally that would kill them. Rather inhumanely, I suspect, that method was probably not super great for the animal, um, but, you know, needs must, and it was probably pretty effective. Now, the reason I didn't include anything about how to catch or how Māori caught rats was because I am planning to do, like, a, a, a kind of a full episode on, like, the history of sort of pest control and, and rat catching in New Zealand. So I was kind of saving it for that. But since we've asked, the, the you, since Davey has asked the question specifically, um, I'm going to put it in here as well, um, since I presume probably not everyone's going to listen to this episode because it's already 30-ish minutes long and I've still got a lot more questions to get through. Um, I did not think it would take this long. Anyway, let's talk about rats and how Māori caught them. Rats, like more, would also utilise their own little paths called ara kiore. Ara meaning path, kiore meaning rat. Today we use that term to specifically mean the Pacific rat, because we've now got three species of rats, the ship, the Norway, and kiore, the Pacific rat. Um, but back then, of course, there was only one species of rat, the kiore, the Pacific rat. That was the only type of rat that they have. So just keep in mind, when I talk about kiore and rats in this context, I'm specifically referring to the Pacific rat, not the ships or Norway rats. So these arakiore could be exploited by trappers because they knew that those rats were always going along those paths. These paths would be made naturally, with the rats running along the easiest route through the bush, such as along ridges or spurs. And as that path got nightly use, it would be reinforced in the soil, the same way that if you see someone uh, or see a path that humans have trod quite a lot you can see that that is the case because it gets used every day and so nothing really grows there and all that sort of stuff similar idea just on a very much smaller scale when setting traps maori were careful not to interrupt the arakiore breaking branches above it so that they might step over and around it to set the traps more easily and removing any sticks leaves or other debris from the trail that might get in the way of any traps or snares a trapping path was called a aratafati ara again meaning path tafati meaning trap 
Rats obviously weren't restricted to these paths all the time. They were just the quickest way to traverse longer distances, so they could get to different areas to search for food, at which point they would leave the arakiore and run around through the bush. Traps were typically set where food was scarce for the rats, since rats would tend to stick to the arakiore in those areas, so they were more likely to encounter a trap rather than run off into the bush looking for food. The trappers also knew that arakiore would always have rats going along them. It was a rat highway, they could see that the rats were running along it every single night, so they knew the rats were there. So putting a tafati on those arakiore meant that there was a higher likelihood of a rat encountering a trap, rather than if they put the trap just anywhere else in the bush. However, sometimes the traps would be set away from the arakiore, and in those cases they would be baited, whereas traps set near arakiore typically weren't baited, the idea being that if they were set on the path, then the rats would have to go through them to, you know, continue going along. So in that case, they were going to encounter it anyway, so you don't need to entice them into the trap, because they're already going to encounter the trap and have to figure out a way to get through it or past it. Whereas if you put it out in the middle of the bush, they need a reason to go in there. There's no reason for them to climb into this weird contraption, not that they knew it was a weird contraption, but there's no reason for them to investigate this thing unless it's baited in some way. If it's set on an arakiore, there is a reason for them, at least if not to investigate it, to at least try and get through it, and that would force them, you know, to eventually get caught. After the trap was set, it would be checked and then reset every time it had caught something. So throughout the night, which is when the rats were the most active, the person would go out, check the trap, and if it had caught something, they would take it out and then reset it for the next rat to come along. So the idea was that Firstly, they were doing this during the night when the rats were the most active, but it was also to ensure that the trap was always live and ready to catch. Once dawn came, the rats would be carried home and, quote, plucked as birds are plucked, end quote. Which I guess means just removing the fur? I'm not really sure. This was mostly from Alston Best and he did not elaborate on that point. Best also says their meat was, quote, rich and very palatable food, nourishing, one of the food supplies that served to build up vigorous bodies, end quote. Which I thought was kind of interesting. I would have thought someone of, you know, the European persuasion of which Elston Best is or was, uh, I would have thought he found rats to be not super delicious, but I guess he did. So good for him. Once rats were cooked, they would be put into hue, gourds, with their own fat to preserve them. Traps would be usually set every 3 to 4 feet, which is about 90 to 120 centimetres, so roughly every metre or so. And of course, there were different types of traps that could be used. One type of trap was to build a little gate out of sticks over the arakiore and the area either side of it, blocking the rat's access, or at least making it less desirable to go around. There would only be one little hole for the rat to get through directly on the arakiore, which is where the snare would be placed. The snare would be attached to another stick overhanging the gate, this stick called the fititupa. 
The fititupa would be placed under tension by attaching the snare and other cords to the gate. It's kind of complicated, and Elston Best does describe it, and he does even provide pictures, which was really nice. Um, but I'm not going to talk about it here, just because it's, it's really quite complicated. The main gist of the whole thing is that there is a sort of barrier with a little gate in the middle, and in the gate is a snare, so a little, like, noose hoop thing that's attached to a stick which is under tension so that when the rat goes through the snare and applies downward pressure to the fititupa it rapidly straightens up and tightens the snare around the rat's neck killing it and there were a couple of different variations uh, of this sometimes you'd have four of them in like a sort of little box thing um or you could have them with like leaves and stuff. So there was a couple of different versions of that type of trap, um, but that was sort of the basic idea of how that kind of worked, um, regardless of what kind of configuration you had or what materials you used to build it. The other major type of trap that was used was the pit trap, which is basically what it sounds like. It's just a really deep hole in the ground. It's just a pit. But there was a, li there was a little bit more uh, you know, going on there. So you dig a big hole, um, or actually I suppose it doesn't have to be big, it just has to be deep. And then you put some roasted hino berries in there as bait. And then you'd also put a log in vertically. You'd stick a log down there. And the idea was that the rats would come along and see these roasted hino berries and think, man, that, that smells pretty good. So they'd jump into the hole, they'd eat the berries, and then they'd use the log to climb back out. And then you'd keep doing that for a few days at least. Now this sounds like the rats are getting a free feed, and they are, the, I mean, you're not wrong, they are getting a free feed, um, but I actually work in conservation in New Zealand, specifically trapping rats, and this is a technique that is still used today, which we call pre-feeding. The idea that you're getting rats to, uh, or even any pest really, it's not specific just to rats, and uh, you know, it's used by um, pest controllers all across the world, this idea of pre-feeding. And usually, if you're pre-feeding, you're trying to achieve one of two things. The first is that you're trying to get the rats uh, familiar with the lure or the bait. You want them to be able to recognize it, you want them to feel no fear when they take it because the thing with uh, rats is they have really good what's called food memory they have they do this thing where uh, if they're presented with a new food source that they don't know what it is they'll go up to it and then they'll give it a sniff and then they'll give it a lick then they'll go away and they'll wait to see if they get sick and if they don't get sick they'll come back and then they'll might nibble a little bit and then they'll go away again and if they don't get sick, they'll come back and they'll take a bit more of a nibble. And then they'll go away again. And they keep doing this, you know, increasingly taking more and more um, of this food source, um, checking to see if they'll get sick until which such point either they do get sick, in which case they know to avoid it, or they don't get sick uh, and then they know that that food source is fine. So the idea of pre-feeding in that context is you want them to get used to your bait so that when they eventually find it in, say, a trap, they will be more willing to climb into that trap. Or if it's poison that you're using, they'll be more likely to take more of the poison. In this case, though, that's not quite, in terms of the pit traps, I mean, this is not quite what they're trying to achieve. What they're trying to achieve is the second one, uh, or the second scenario, which is you're trying to teach the rats to do a certain action. 
they want them to jump into the pit with no fear because they know that the berries are down there. So they're pre-feeding it every day, you know, over, say, three or four days to a week because the rats will jump in, they'll nibble, they'll come back out. And they know that if this, if berry, if they keep finding the berries in this pit every single night, they know, great, I'm going to go back there, I'm going to get a feed, it's guaranteed, amazing. So they go back, eat the berries, climb out. Go back, eat the berries, climb out. Go back, eat the berries. Where's the fucking log gone? Because what would happen is that after you finished your pre-feeding, they would do the same thing. The Māori would do the same thing. They'd throw the throw the berries into the into the hole, and then they'd just take the log home with them. So that when the rats go go there and they look down, they go, great, berries, more berries, same as the last few days. Jump in, eat the berries, and they go, oh shit, I can't get out. And so that's what they're trying to achieve, so that when the guy comes back, he looks down the pit, hopefully he's got four or five uh, rats that he can he can take with him, which I think is, um, yeah, a really cool, um, so so simple. It's, it's literally three different things. Dig a hole, put some berries in it, and, or any, I guess, type of lure that you've got, and stick a log in, and then just do that for a few days, take the log away, and then hopefully the next morning you've got some rats. Simple! So yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. So yeah, so there were different versions of of this, um, involving different, slightly different configurations. Um, but that again, that's sort of the general gist of what a pit trap was meant to do. Because the other one actually was, um, you could dig the pit, and then you'd have like a stick leaning over um, the pit. Um, so it'd like you'd, you'd attach it to like the edge of the pit, and then it would it would go over like a like an unfinished bridge if you will and at the end of the stick you'd have like um again some berries or something as a lure and then the rats would climb along the stick um to get to the berries but then the stick wouldn't be strong enough to hold their weight at the end so they'd just fall off into the pit and have no way out that is still a pit pit trap design that people uh use today um one i guess probably famous example i I say famous it's famous because this is what i do for a job and it's kind of my job to know these things um but in terms of you know in the industry um one of the famous ones is um mousetrap monday he made his own one where it sort of flips down um it's a similar thing which can attach to the top of a bucket any sort of bucket um and it's a plastic thing that you put some lure on the end that tips down and um you know the the rats fall in um and he made another design where it's more like a wheel um as well which also apparently works pretty well um so yeah so th- these sorts of designs i think is really interesting because they're still designs that by and large we're using today um but yeah as i said i'm gonna do a whole episode on this at some point i don't know when that'll be partially because i f- i you know i think it's interesting but that's also because you know this is the stuff that I do for a living um, is conservation and trapping rats and stoats and possums and all that sort of stuff. So I find that very interesting and I think it would be interesting to chart the course of how that has developed over time from pre-European Māori to today. You know, because in some cases, like these pit traps, you'll find that the technology hasn't really changed. You know, the underlying idea of how these things work hasn't actually changed a huge amount. Um, It's mostly just the materials and some refinement of the idea in some way in terms of maybe the bait and, and that kind of stuff. So our next question comes from Margaret. 
Would the Ta'arawa legend about Hatupatu and the Bird Woman potentially be about an encounter with a harsh eagle turned into a myth? Thank you for your question, Margaret. Uh, This relates to episode 56, which is named Hatupatu. It's all about um, the man, Hatupatu, who I believe he had to escape from his brothers and stuff, and eventually that means he gets chased by a bird woman. And this is a really interesting question because um, I, you know, it's, I think it's cool to think about how these stories came about. What was the moral trying to be taught what was the practical information trying to be conveyed and what was the original story that caused you know that that this developed from because if we're coming from the standpoint of you know purely scientifically atheist and all that bird women don't exist right um yeah so to think about where's that where's that idea come from how did this story develop i think is really um anthropologically and culturally is really interesting so to answer your question i think there is certainly a possibility um that the bird woman story is about an encounter with a harsh eagle um the story originates from the period just after the great migration which is when maori arrived in new zealand um and of course harsh eagles would have been around during that time they only went extinct when their main prey which is moa also went extinct so they didn't have anything to eat but to elaborate on that i think it does depend on which half of the bird woman you think is the part that was embellished and um, you've uh, margaret you've clearly come at this thing thinking about that it was a bird that was the thing that was encountered and then that eventually became you know they eventually added the woman part to that um, perhaps to anthropomorphize it in some way which is a perfectly reasonable way to look at this um it was just that when i was thinking about your question i was i sort of had this idea of well what if it was the other way around what if it was an encounter with a human not necessarily even a woman but was it an encounter with a human of some kind and that avian nature to that person was added over time or was their nickname something to do with a bird and then that got changed from being this person is called the eagle you know and eventually it got turned into well that well they're not the name wasn't an e- the eagle they were actually an eagle you know so there, i think there's a, a there's lots of different ways that this could have come about um because perhaps hatupatu wasn't even trying to escape a woman or a bird maybe he was trying to escape a towa a war party or maybe he was trying to run away from home from his mother or his wife and then the story gets embellished from there i think there's a lot of different angles that this could have originated from um so i think that's really yeah really interesting to think about and yes again certainly could have been an encounter with a harsh eagle there are reports of harsh eagles um you know being able to pick up small children and that sort of stuff and i 100 percent think that that's very likely and possible that that could have happened thinking about your question i was yeah i just thought yeah well what if could it could have been something else that could have um been the impetus for that story and and how that developed over time Um, it's something that we'll never know obviously we can never know what that was but again it's a fun thing to think about 
As mentioned at the top of the episode, there's still a few more of these to go, but since it's the end of the year as of this episode, and the next one's not going to come out till next year, I thought I might just take the opportunity now to say thank you to everyone who has listened this year, most especially to the patrons who donate every month to cover costs like hosting and the books that I need to buy to research and all sorts of other things. Patrons who donate $5 or more a month get bonus episodes and admittedly I've been a bit slack about putting those out but next year I've got plans for a few that give extra context to what is going on but isn't necessarily directly related to what's actually happening. It's just interesting history that I thought was really cool but I can't really talk about it on the main feed because it is just really not that relevant but it gives a bunch of extra context what i'm trying to say is that if you've thought about becoming a patron and wanting to donate to the podcast next year might be a good time to start doing so if you want some extra for experts style content so thank you so much everyone for an amazing 2023 and i look forward to bringing you a new chapter in aotearoa's history next year as always and a merry kere to you all. I've just realised that this is coming out after Christmas on the main feed, but I've already recorded it. Uh, whatever. <laughs> when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.